So tonight, of course, we'll continue reflecting about this topic of anatta, the impersonal nature, conditional nature of experience. But uh, before I go on, I thought I'd just check and see if there are some reflections on the meditation instruction. Perhaps some of you read the article that these uh, meditation instructions are based on. They're pretty straightforward, nothing new for most of you. Um, But there's an article, I think it was the first one listed under the resource post um, that, uh, based on a talk Joseph Goldstein had given. But any reflections about the meditation this week, last week, in your home practice before we go on? Yes, Sharon. The whole issue of cost Did everybody hear Sharon? So she was saying she gets the impersonal nature with sound and with sensation, but when she's paying attention to the thoughts, they all seem very self-referential. And so the instruction's a little bit different with the thoughts. I mean, the way that Joseph sets this up, he's uh, taking the three of these aspects of our experience and hearing, in a way, lends itself for the mind to recognize the effortlessness of the knowing of hearing and uh, and to really play with how hearing can be there without there needing to be a sense of somebody hearing. So that's the lesson to be learned with that reflection. And then with sensation, because there's such a very deep habit of the mind, the thinking mind, conceptualizing, projecting an image of the body or a sense of location of the body. So we're playing with opening to sensations in order to see that none of those subtle thoughts of shape, form, location are necessary in that when we really open to sensation in a more direct and pure way, it falls away. And the And it revolutionizes the understanding of what body is. So that's the purpose of that reflection. And then with thought, he's not the instruction, maybe I said that, I don't remember, but it's not trying to see that thoughts are impersonal. It's really the emphasis is on seeing the arising of a thought and the ceasing of a thought because it's the seeing of that which which helps the mind to understand that thoughts are impersonal. So we don't try to see the impersonal nature of thoughts. We try to see thoughts as they actually are. And what we normally are missing is the arising and the ceasing of thoughts. So like when I have a thought, I'm giving a talk now, the thought has an appearance of like having been there and doesn't, like it will stay there. You know, there's a certain solidity to the concepts that our mind constructs with thought, with language. So that's why we have to train ourselves to see the arising and train ourselves to see the ceasing of thoughts because it will change the relationship the mind has to thoughts. They won't won't seem personal after seeing that. Go ahead. Uh, When I'm trying to see them arise, it's a thought that seems to arise. It's not like what my mind does is say, oh, there's a thought. And that's a thought. Yeah. I don't know how to get out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's just 
we all know that experience, or most of us probably find what you said very familiar, because it's like uh, we spend a lot of time creating a Dharma practitioner, and then we wonder why the hell we did that. Because <laughs> there it is, it's like a beast in the room, and now we have a relatively subtle room, and the Buddhist practitioner is there looking for something to do, and it's like, you know, the proverbial bull in the china shop causing all kinds of damage. And we wish it weren't there. So what it, what it reminds us of is that, well, we need to relax. It's okay to relax. That at this level of practice, you know, doing the more subtle wisdom reflections, the quality of effort doesn't need much um, potency. Because on this level of practice... The way it is, is naturally, the mind is naturally very interested in the way it is. So as long as we can open these doors, you know, and actually look at sensation, look at sound in this way, look at thought in this way, it's new ground for the mind. So it's interesting for the mind. So we don't need that reverberation of overmanaging the practice, which we all have to some degree. And it is very unpleasant, actually. It turns out if we like are sitting a lot and there's a lot of that um, sense of doing, being the Dharma practitioner, it can be uh, really frustrating. But that's just more. That's like now you're going to get someone to tell the Dharma practitioner to go away. you know. And then it's just like another layer. So the basic instruction is that wisdom, the practice, wisdom, it has its own momentum. And so, what we tell the ego self-doer, right, what we tell the doer is, it's okay to relax, right? Because wisdom has its own momentum now. Wisdom wants to understand the way it is. Wisdom is impersonal. It doesn't need to be a doer in that sort of self-sense. Just follow the instructions, you know, which is relax, and in that relaxed state, notice thoughts come and go. Now, it's still going to arise that that, but then you can get interested in the arising and ceasing of that, because like you said, Sharon, that's a, that's a thought too, a thought with, you know, body tension usually associated with it. Yeah, Helen, and then Casey. Um, I have trouble, t- I can't see it arise. I can see it like in the middle or at the end or when it's done, but not when it arises. Is that normal? Well, this is very, <laughs> this is very subtle, right? So, we know that it is arising, right? Yeah. <laughs> These thoughts have to be arising. So, that, that's like, wisdom gets interested in that fact. Like, how come it can't be seen? Like, what's actually in the way of seeing that? I'm lost before I see it. Yeah. So then, so then it's like learning to abide, like when, like, I'm sure a lot of you notice, as soon as you get that instruction to be aware of thoughts, it appears that there are no thoughts in the mind. Like, how could that be possible? <laughs> so, it's it's learning to just relax in that that state. And the the interesting thing about thoughts is they they don't always come from one place. So, one of the more subtle ways the doer, the Dharma practitioner, manifests it's like a cat staring at a door. But that's not where the thoughts are going to arise, right? That, for like Sharon suggests, that itself is a kind of thought, right? It's a mental projection of being the cat watching the mouse hole. And uh, so what 
if we're going to give the doer something to do, let's have the doer say, honey, it's okay to relax. It's okay to relax into the space of the mind. There is the space of the mind here. Let's just relax and see what happens. So instead of doing, like trying to see the, the beginning, it's just we're planting the resolve to notice the arising of thought and planting the resolve, the intention to know. And the thing is, we just, that, that planting doesn't even need to be very, um, potent because, because if the mind understands what it's being asked to do, it's naturally interested in that. It's interested that, uh, it knows, I mean, intellectually we know that thoughts do arise and they do cease, right? Because how many thoughts we've had and they're not there now. And, uh, so it's, the mind is in, will be interested in, so we just have to plant it. We don't have to do more than just plant that intention to see the beginning of a thought, to see the ending of the thought. And then we just have to be patient in that experience. Just be patient in the space. Yeah, Casey, do you have a thought? Arising and ceasing? <laughs> Part of I'm hearing this with such fresh ears at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, so when I'm sitting in meditation, many times it's happened, tonight it happened where, you know, there'll be uh, awareness of multiple things sort of happening at once, and there's no argument between all of it. And there's this, uh, yeah, and uh, a certain amount of interest. And you said, you know, just, uh, I forget what your words were, but lean into your interest or rely on the interests of the mind, too. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's... That makes perfect sense, you know. And um, I mean, that's sort of been my entry into uh, more relaxed meditation or clearer meditation. I guess my question is, you know, even though it, um, I guess it, it's just like no matter what, what I keep noticing is that there's a, a sense of self. That's like, seems to be underlying all of this. Like, no matter how spacious the mind might be at the moment, as spacious as that is, there's this, there's this sense of self. And, uh, or as quiet as it can be, you know, there's this. And who's having a problem with that? Well, I don't know if I'm having a problem with that, I mean, but it's, I just keep. I'm just like, this is the hardest thing for me to get my, right. my head around. But you see why I asked that question, who's having a problem with it, is that it's, uh, it's like it's either sensation being known or thought being known or sight or sound being known, but it's probably a combination of sensation and thought being known. And so if we train in this way, then... As soon as that comes online, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm sure a lot of us do. Because that projection is very, uh, it's very subtle and very pervasive tendency of the mind. And it's going to keep projecting itself because of its momentum. And wisdom just keeps breaking it down. That's sensation being known. Whatever the, tension associated with that projection, that sensation. Whatever content or image related to that projection, 
that's thought being known. And if it's a thought being known, that thought is arising and it's ceasing. And the mind can be trained to notice that. And the more the mind's trained to notice that the sensations have no shape or form, it's a flow. And as a flow, sensation is very ephemeral, almost like nothing. And thoughts arise and cease. They come out of nowhere and they cease into nowhere. And the more the mind sees on that level, the more whatever that projection is, it's not a problem for anybody. And so as long as it appears on some level, however subtle, to be a problem, that means there's some deconstructing. That means that the mind is relying on concept to organize its reality. And it isn't uh, grounding in Dhamma the way it is. And this is a basic um, approach to the, the Buddhist teachings, is that we use dukkha. Dukkha is our guide. You know, as long as there's dukkha, there's something to wake up to. Because the basic premise, hypothesis, is that dukkha isn't what it appears to be. It appears to be a personal problem, right? That's the definition of dukkha. Something that feels like a personal burden. So as long as there's something that is appearing as a personal burden, we look at that. And we look at its changing nature, its unsatisfying nature, its impersonal nature, until there isn't something that appears to be a problem. And in this way, the mind gradually, through this training, liberates itself from anything that arises and seems to be a problem. A couple more thoughts before we go on. Haya and then... I'm just going to put this off here. I don't know if anybody... Just because I'm saying it, I don't know if anybody else is there, but actually it sounds like a foreign language you're speaking to me right now. The instructions feel really... I don't know what you're saying, actually. I, I... Camp. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But, but higher. Yeah, but you know the experience of sound. Yeah. Okay. So but, just notice that and get interested in what that is and see if there needs to be any sense of somebody knowing when there is the knowing of sound. Just look. Same with sensation. You know, you're aware of sensations. You're taking that up as a theme. This is what the mind is opening to or contemplating. Sensations are being known. And you're noticing how unnecessary and actually in the way any body image, any thought or interpretation about the body, that that's not necessary in the experience of sensation being known. Right. So we're just contemplating. This is the important thing, and it's really great, is that... Uh, Anatta, you know, the not-self quality, isn't something that we have to find. This is anatta. Whatever this is for you right now, this is anatta. So you don't have to find a different experience than the one you're having. This is the experience to get interested in, not a different experience. Because this is what our mind does when it thinks it doesn't understand it assumes I've got the wrong experience. <laughs> you know, if I only had a different experience to open to, I'd get it. But this is the experience we want to open to. And all the teachings and all the words and stuff is just uh, to open us up. And remember, this anatta is a skillful means. It isn't something to discover. It's really a way of uh, sort of 
using the mind or using the attention to see what we're not seeing. So we use that concept of impersonal nature, or we use the concept of the changing nature, or the unsatisfying nature of experience. We use it to highlight some aspect of this, right? So when I say impersonal nature, you know, we talk about it in a lot of ways until we have some intellectual sense of what we're talking about, like it doesn't have a center, it's conditional, lawful, not personal, not something I'm doing. And so we have these words, these concepts, and then we use them, you know, it's like the frame through which we observe this, our experience, our lived experience. And that's really the point here. Otherwise, we're like, there's a, a discourse. I'm going to just keep going. This is my segue, but we'll have time at the end. Um, there's a discourse where the Buddha says, just as a dog tied by a leash to a post or a stake keeps running around and circling around that very post or stake, in the same way, an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person assumes form to be self or, or the self as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self in the form. So this is one of the four ways we personalize form. This is another word for body, form is, or mind. We're either thinking that, you know, I'm, assumes that form to be the self, the mind is who I am, the body is who I am, or I own the body, I own the mind, but one way or another, we're personalizing, and that's like a dog running around. You know, we're trapped by the conceiving mind, the conceptualizing mind. We're trapped or imprisoned by the very conceptions the thinking mind creates. Because, in some magical way, the mind gets, the heart gets seduced by its own constructions, keeps gravitating around them, orienting around them. So the Buddha teaches a middle way between nihilistic views and eternalistic views of things. So, But the middle way isn't something in between. It's like any fixed conception, you know, that stake that the dog runs around, it could be the stake like, you know, believing I'm an atheist, there is no meaning except the meaning we construct. It seems like this is a nihilistic view, but nihilism assumes, or uh, yeah, assumes that there's a somebody who is um, affected by this nihilistic understanding or the you know meaninglessness that the meaninglessness refers back to me, right? And the same with the eternalist view, that somehow something continues on, that some essential me is here, always will be here, behind things. That assumes also that there's something that that view, you know, that idea refers to me. I live in a world that has this sort of essential self, this soul that continues on. So this, this, what the Buddha is pointing to is something that liberates the mind from any fixed view, a fixed nihilistic view 
a fixed eternalistic view, it liberates the mind from view or from any fixed belief or notion. And what this does, this liberation, it, it allows us to engage without all the implications of the mind being fixed. Because once the mind is fixed or established or dependent on some idea, some view, then there are all kinds of implications. And we can see this all the time. Now, you know, now it sounds like I'm talking about it philosophically, but my mind, your mind, it has gotten fixed in who knows how many ways just today. Fixed, like something happens to us and our mind gets fixed that uh, I've got to solve this problem. So we take birth right in that moment as the person, this entity that feels real, as anything feels real, that really is dependent on solving this problem, or I will feel badly if I don't solve this problem, or some, something bad will happen to me. People won't like me or something like that. So we all of a sudden exist. We have constructed a universe. I need to solve this problem. And we live in that universe as long as the mind is clinging to that view. Now think about how many times we quite literally constructed a universe that we then inhabited for a period of time. Today. So is there a way to be a human being, have a body, have a mind, have a life, relationships, emotions, without establishing, without being dependent or fixed in any way? What would that be like? It's really a kind of death, because in in the great paradoxical way, ironic way, we have we associate our mind, the conditioned mind, the what the Buddhist calls the worldly mind. It equates being fixed, the mind being dependent or fixed or established, with being alive. And so, as we begin to explore a practice that leads to the experience of a mind not fixed, it's really scary, as if you know, one were to die, because the mind is losing its mooring, its ground in a sense. As stressful as that ground is, you know, grasping, clinging to a view, an idea of who I am, who you are, what's right, what's bad, all of that is tension, but that tension is synonymous with who, you know, who I think I am. It's a great line, maybe I can track it down here. This is from uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, this great Thai master of the last century. You are the you that isn't really you. (laughs) You are the you that isn't really you. So the mind constructs a sense of you that isn't really you, right? In all the different ways we do this. And it's the mind is very nimble at this. It's like, because... Any way we establish the self will express the ephemeral changing nature of all things. So selfing has to be done moment by moment by moment. 
in all the little and big ways that that happens. So to begin to uh, not do that is to be willing to die. So like, uh, you know, maybe in for some of us right now, there, what's taking birth is a sense is, I don't get this. I'm the one who doesn't get this. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. Or I'm the one who gets this. Finally, I get it. You know, I get it. And I don't want to forget it. You know, I gotta write it down or <laughs> tattoo it on me or something so I don't forget. So we might be taking birth in one of those two ways right now. And then if we're practicing now, then we might notice that birthing process right now. And if we're really noticing it, then a choice. Mindfulness allows for a choice. Like, I can really allow that tendency to personalize that identity that the mind is con- constructing or speaking out, you know, through language, through concept, image. I can, the mind can grasp it, or the mind can just let it be what it is. It's just a thought. So, Nobody has to stop the conceptualizing process. That would just be self-activity. So it's not about stopping the idea, I get it, or stopping the idea, I don't get it. But just letting that be what it is. It's just a movement of sensation and thought, and maybe some other components of experience, coming and going, taking birth and then ceasing. So it's the not uh, doing anything that is the death, right? So we're dying to the habit. What's dying is the habit of doing something with the arisings, basically getting tight around them. And then the getting tight around them is sets in motion grasping the next thing because we don't want to lose that tight feeling. But it's like sand through the fingers. Whatever we just grasp, I'm really getting it. That is just a very ephemeral thing. So we have to reconstitute that sense. I'm really getting it or something similar, you know, something related to the previous arising in order to have something to grasp. Because the mind is identified, um, dependent on the feeling, the experiencing of grasping itself. That, more than anything, defines the self. Self and dukkha are one and the same. That's why putting, making it a verb, you know, selfing is like the verb equivalent of dukkha. You know, dukkha is the result, the experience of selfing, of grasping, identifying with experience. Ajahn Chah talks about this dying process. He says, The Buddha taught to die before you die, to be finished with things before they are finished. Then you can be at ease, right? So that birthing of the thought, I don't get this. So we die to that before itself dies. That thought will have its own trajectory, but by not even owning it as self, not taking it personally, then we've died to that thought. It's still, you know, that thought's still going to do its thing. I really don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, and then it's gone. And maybe another round or many more rounds, whatever. But the mind isn't taking it up, it's dying to it. 
to be finished with things before they are finished. Then you can be at ease. Let things break before they're broken. Let them finish before they're finished. This is the Buddha's intention in teaching the Dhamma. Even if you listen to teachings for a hundred or a thousand eons, if you do not understand these points, you will not be able to undo your suffering and you will not find peace. You will not see the Dhamma. So this is just another way, Ajahn Chah's way of talking about non-attachment, not clinging, or relating to experience as not-self. We have this tendency um, to pathologize pathologize the three characteristics. Um, Like impermanence, you know, it's something, like even for Dharma students, people like us who have been practicing, you know, impermanence is something we have to manage. Something I have to get through my practice. I have to understand. And same with dukkha. You know, dukkha is something I have to open to, I have to understand, anatta, and these three characteristics of change and the unsatisfactory nature and the impersonal nature of experience, it can seem like a burden. So I mentioned last week that I wanted to talk about these three characteristics and in particular anatta as a, in terms of happiness, not as a big burden for, for us. Cause it's, that's not actually a useful or correct understanding. It's it's not that uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the impermanent, unsatisfying, and impersonal nature of things are a problem. It's the thinking that they're a problem that is the problem. The problem is that the conditioned mind thinks they're a problem. They're not a problem in and of themselves. It's just the way it is. It's always been this way. And it's never been a problem that it always seems like it's been a problem. And this is the interesting thing, and uh, just generally as a, a, a relevant part of our practice is to be really interested um, in the places where the heart doesn't want to go, doesn't want to open, doesn't want to see. Because, you know, the Buddha, just as a hypothesis at least, is saying that there isn't a problem, hasn't been a problem, can't be a problem. So that means whatever arises in our lives as something to resist, something to be afraid of, then what is that? You know, it's just life energy. It's just, it's like what we're afraid to open to, what we're afraid to see is exactly what the heart, the mind, has separated from. These are just words, so don't take this too literally. And it's that reintegration that will bring us alive, will be the experience of liberation. Liberation is a realization of of whatever the conceptualizing mind has imagined. It's the reintegration of that, or the sort of the putting, like I mentioned I think last week, you know, the putting down of disenchantment, 
putting down of the mind's clinging to myth and or you know fairy tales, imaginings. It's the putting down of that, the reintegration of that. So that's the way to think about these trainings. It may, it is challenging. It's challenging because it's subtle, and it's challenging because it goes against the grain, the grain of the conditioned mind. Because the conditioned mind has had this uh, strange and somewhat magical thing happen where it's gotten addicted to dukkha. It's gotten addicted to the experience of grasping. It only feels safe in in a relative sense when the mind heart is grasping, holding, resisting, struggling in some way. Life energy, being alive, is synonymous with a struggle. And the awakening process is realizing fundamentally that there never has been and never could be an actual struggle from a deeper perspective. That whenever there is the appearance of struggle, it's something that is being manufactured through what we call ignorance. The mind constructs the experience of struggle. It's like, uh, you know, you're on a roller coaster or or doing something relatively intense, and, uh, you know, like, or even skiing, you know, it's maybe more relevant to what people are doing, you know, but we get tight. And then, and then you, hopefully, we remember, you know, as we're skiing downhill, like, I don't need to be tight. Or you're having a conversation. I notice this a lot in having conversations, like just being tight. And then remembering, I don't need to be tight. I don't need to be grasping or holding. So we have to look at that process of relaxing and demons, monsters might arise like we're going to get destroyed if we relax, if we put down the struggling, the grasping. Just let things move. The body as a movement of sensation, hearing as a movement of sound, thinking as a movement of mental activity. Just the flow, our whole life as a flow. Well, who's going to make the right decisions? You know, that's that's what arises. How do I know that all things will turn out well? If we just... So, these are the demons, the monsters that we have to negotiate that come up, you know? And so we get to experiment. We, we say, well, let's just try it out. We'll find a safe space, you know, and we'll sit for 30 minutes and we'll just let everything move. And we see what happens. What happens when I let everything move? Well, one, we see that it isn't easy. <laughs> And two, when we have some moments in that 30 minutes where everything is just moving and there's the awareness, like I said in the guided meditation, it's never more than two things. An object is being known. Something is being known. And um, when we see things on that simple level, things are being known. And there's no end to that. Then where's the problem? This is a couple lines from uh, Rilke. He says, We have no reason to mistrust our world, for
for it, for it is not against us. Has its terrors, they are our terrors. Has its abysses, those abysses belong to us. Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us, once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants our love. Like an old habit that no longer really makes sense or fits. This is a... I want to read a couple passages and then open it back up for discussion. This is a translation by um, Andy Olensky from a passage, and I'll, I'll put this up on the our webpage, but it isn't there yet. It's from the Udana. Happiness is solitude for one who is content, for one who's heard Dhamma, for one who can see. So this is talking about a very basic level of happiness, like the classic uh, image would be a, a person going off, becoming a monastic, living in the woods, not having a lot of duties and responsibilities, and finding the happiness of, of having just a little, just enough, just enough food, just enough shelter. And then the Buddha goes on to talk about another kind of happiness. Happiness is hurting nothing in the world, showing restraint among all living creatures. So, as nice as it is to have a simple life without a lot of complications, content with just a little, but the two be abiding with a reverence for life and having a really deep trust in the goodness of the heart that cares and that isn't going to harm oneself or another. There's a particular kind of happiness that arises. Sometimes it's called the bliss of blamelessness, but it's really this arising of love and compassion, but not as a somebody doing, but just a, a natural abiding place for the mind. Like, I, hopefully you find yourself in this place where, you know, you see a roach in the house or you see a spider in the house, and it's not like you actually have to restrain yourself from killing the spy, spider. You're, you're just, your natural response is like, oh, you kind of like, you're a precious vulnerable creature a lot like me, you know, and may you be happy. That's not a contrived or a practice, but it's just a natural response of the heart when we see another creature, another person, another insect or animal. And that's a happiness, like seeing that quality of the heart that cares naturally. It's just its nature, that uncovered nature. That's a really beautiful kind of happiness. And then the Buddha goes on to talk about a third kind. Happiness is not attachment to the world, having overcome all central pleasures. So this is the Buddha's pointing here to the happiness of um, equanimity. So when the mind, when attention notices in an inner way, a peacefulness and uh, buoyancy and 
rapture and lightness, then it becomes less and less interested in eating the next meal, having the next conversation, doing the next thing. It's not like those things have become bad. It's just the same in our in our world. Like once we've had, uh, you know, really good food, we're less interested in nachos or not nachos. Uh, dirt, what are those little orange curly things? Cheetos. Cheetos. <laughs> they told us once you have Cheetos, nothing. You can't taste anything else. But <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like once we have a refined sensibility then more gross, dense things are just less interested, interesting to the mind. And so, quite naturally, in the same way, when the mind begins to tune, attune to the qualities of peace, the natural, available qualities of inner peace, then the external world of sense experience is just less relevant because the happiness <coughs> that arises from the mind retreating from sense desire is more profound than the experience of even refined sense desires that are gratified. Now this you may not believe, but it's really, it's actually true. People like, you know, it's like at some point when the mind starts to access more quiet, more beautiful spaces of mind, it's like the mind likes to meditate likes to abide in those nice places. It's not like a burden that we have to, oh, I'm supposed to sit every day. And not that every sit will be great. And regardless of whether we, how often we access those beautiful states of mind, it changes our relationship to everything else because the mind knows that they exist, that there is an inner happiness. And it changes our relationship to pursuing things on a more worldly level. And the Buddha goes on to talk about a fourth kind of happiness. But getting free of the conceit that I am, this is the greatest happiness of all. And this is what Andy Olensky writes in his comments. He says, The last and final obstacle to the highest happiness of all is the unconscious reflex of concocting a view of self that stands at the center of all that one thinks, says, and does. The Buddha here describes, no doubt for the first time, the experience of insight that stands as the culmination of the spiritual path and is the unique defining feature of his teaching. Because the first three kinds of happiness, a lot of people have talked about all different places, but you don't find too many places in history where somebody's talking about being free of the conceit I am. I mean, it comes up in other spiritual practices. I'm not sure I agree with Andy that it's entirely 100% unique to the teachings of the Buddha. And I don't think we have to figure out whether it's unique to the teachings of the Buddha. That could just... You could, you could have a war around that issue, you know. There have been a lot of wars around these questions of, you know, my God's bigger than your God. But... It is a, even today with the great availability of the Buddhist teachings and many other great spiritual traditions, it's a, it's a pretty unique teaching, you know, to contemplate going beyond the conceit I am. To even imagine that from a self-centered point of view 
like the just considering it intellectually like what would that be like to be a human being not dependent on the conceit I am, not relying on the conceit I am. And I think that's actually not a bad contemplation. Here's a something from Rumi. What I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. What I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping, right? Because we don't want to be the one who leaped or the one who has to leap, the one who did a good job of leaping out of my personality. I live too long where I can be reached. And then this is another poetic description from Dogen, this great <clears throat> Buddhist monk from Japan who went to China back, I think, in the 13th century and brought Chan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, to, to Japan. To study the Buddha, to, to study the Buddha way, right, to do this practice is to study the self. And here you can think, like I said earlier, selfing is dukkha. To study the Buddha way is to study the self, the stress that arises from self-view. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things, to come alive, right? It's an awakening, an enlivening, liberating process. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things, When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. Isn't that a beautiful poetic description? So I'll leave it here so that we can check in a little bit more. Perhaps more questions have come up that you'd like to bring up. From the talk and earlier discussion, yeah, again. Early on, you uh, gave the example of um, the stress that comes from having a fixed view, and you said that the example you gave was, this is my problem to fix. And then, so I've been thinking about that, of course, for the rest of the talk, and it dawned on me that sometimes in my job, it in fact is my problem to fix, and if I don't fix it, then I will soon find myself unemployed. So... I'm wondering if you could just give skillful ways to think about that in unskillful ways. Like, how do you get stuck in that in an unskillful way, and how do you accept, well, yeah, this is my, my problem to fix. So, right, but it all it all is about how you're relating to those thoughts. It's not about not having those thoughts. Would you shut the ventilation fan off, the switch above the thermostat? For these last ten minutes, it will help us here. Yeah, the switch right above. Yeah, thanks. So Jan was saying, if you didn't hear her, that, you know, the thought that, that come up all the time, you know, oh, I need to do this. If I don't do this, there will be consequences. There's nothing inherently wrong with those thoughts. It's just a question of what we do. Like, why, when the mind realizes, oh yeah, this needs to be done. Like, it, basically the mind is just realizing some aspect of karma. You know, if I, if I show up to work, then, you know, things will go better. If I don't go to work, things won't go so well. You know, just basic coming out of our understanding from all our past experience, how things work. So that might arise as a thought or not. 
But one way or another, the mind recognizes uh, the lawfulness of how it all works, you know, this relation, relational world we live in. Now, the question is, does the mind need to self around those thoughts, that, that understanding of karma? Remember last week, we were here last week, I mentioned that this really useful teaching from Ajahn Tanisaro where he's saying that the primary worldview that the Buddha recommends we ground in is the view of karma, not the view of anatta. So that means that we start with this, this kind of grounding in this reality that things are unfolding lawfully. There's an interdependent, natural unfolding, everything affecting, influencing everything else. And, uh, and as a self, as an ego, I could get quite tight about it because my ability to affect how it all is unfolding is rather limited. And, uh, from a self point of view, that's a little disturbing. So the Buddha then says, well, here, here's a teaching that helps you live in a karmic world free. Right? There is this lawful interdependent unfolding. How to be completely free at ease in that world? Well, anatta, this realization of, like this way of realizing this way of not, the mind not projecting a self, a center to the lawful unfolding of karma, of cause and effect, liberates any problem that might arise in the mind. So there's still a Jan who's got to go to work, or if she does this, this will happen. If she does this other thing, something else will happen. But there's no friction developing around any of that. You either do something that leads to a positive result, or you do something that leads to a negative result. And then that's that will be the next crossroad, and another choice will be made. But does the mind, is it skillful for the mind to impute, to put a center to those series of choices being made? Is that helpful in some way? Does it, you know, add value in any way? That we can directly observe as we go about our life. Does it add value to personalize all the choices being made? Does it make us make better choices, for example? And just to keep an open mind about it. Don't be, don't be imposing some view, but just to look at how it works. <clears throat> yeah, and I'll like I said, I'll get this up for everyone too. There's a couple of versions. I'll, I'll maybe I'll put up both Ajahn Tanisaro's translation and uh, Andy's. Happiness is solitude for one who is content, who's heard the Dhamma, and who can see. Happiness is hurting nothing, hurting nothing in the world, showing restraint among all living creatures. Happiness is not attachment to the world, having overcome all sensual pleasures or sensual desires, but getting free of the conceit that I am, this is the greatest happiness of all. Could ask this to mind. Bob, did you want to say anything? Uh, I, I was, well, actually, when, when, when you said you looked at me and said, I'll go on to the talk. Um, 
I noticed throughout most of your talk, I was um, there was a low level thinking of, Ooh, will I talk again or not? Should I talk again or not? Um, which was a little interesting. Um, but the 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 um, watching thoughts for me has been. Uh, uh, I don't, whether this is good or bad, I don't know, but it's been fun. I mean, I I I, um, I feel like it's watching a movie or listening to a radio show, and I'm surprised by how many tracks are going on at once. Sometimes, if I can get back a little bit from them and and depersonalize them um, during the meditation tonight, it, um, why? But I had just this huge visual sort of recollection of a garage window that was broken at my house when I was probably five or six years old, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, and I kind of watched that pop up and go away. Um, and, and then one other thing is this morning I was, uh, on my way to work, I was telling Mary about this on the way over here tonight and, you know, there were several tracks rolling at once. Um, and, and just a little tiny, tiny one off in the distance was, this um, constant um, sort of self-critical, self-denigrating kind of um, arrow-pointing sort of thing. That that um, when I got kind of a glimpse of it, it it felt valuable to me. Um, yeah. There's two levels of the insight. Both are quite valuable. On a therapeutic level, just being aware of the unfolding of thought and sensation and every other aspect of experience will reveal many unwholesome patterns that have gotten, you know, set in motion one way or another. And we can do a lot of powerful therapeutic work in just seeing the different unwholesome patterns and replacing them, you know, by, by recognizing, you know, we, we find some other way of of managing that tendency of the mind. I find I get in trouble when I try to place them because they come back with more venom sometimes. Well, like anything, you know, the, the therapeutic work is always going to be limited because it always is coming from the place of self, you know. But that doesn't diminish. I mean, there there isn't any practitioner, whether or not you have a therapist or you've ever done sort of normal therapeutic work. I've had several. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you've already done. <laughs> but the thing is, there's a lot of that, like, uh, like for example, you might sit down and you might, a lot of doubt might come up about, like, I don't really know what the heck I'm doing in this practice. And uh, But you might just, you know, therapeutically say, you know, nobody knows what they're doing. You know, and that's just, there's, this is just how it is, that this is a subtle, confusing practice, and that's okay. It's okay not to be really clear about what you're doing. We'll just sort of take it one step at a time. So I've just done some therapeutic work there. You know, I've replaced a relatively toxic thought, you know, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, and I could have gotten really caught in that, and that could have caused me to leave or spend the whole time with a different thought. But to see that that, that thought, that first thought, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, to see that it isn't self, that it doesn't belong, doesn't have a center, then there is no need for any therapeutic work, right? Because it doesn't need to be fixed. It isn't, there isn't a self that needs to be fixed or be corrected. 
So it's just useful, I think, to understand that we work on both levels. We're, and not understanding that can make this teaching on anatta confusing. Because the anatta isn't so much a therapeutic approach to the problem of being a human being. That a lot of good therapeutic insights will come from doing, from doing these reflections because you will see more deeply the different patterns by looking in this subtle way. But you don't want to get confused between the two. It's good to do both in a way that's skillful, of course, but uh, it's good to understand the difference between the two. Time for one more thought. Yeah, Wendy. Coming in tonight, I didn't realize until I sat down how much agitation there was in my mind. All work and burdens and questions. Um, and then to the point where when you were talking about began with fear, I literally couldn't hear sound other than just the fat and the chatter. And at some point, and it was probably just about noticing and realizing and passing phenomena. Something shifted, almost like in a painting, when you are looking at the figure and then you begin looking at the ground. Mm-hmm. And, or, it's like islands in the middle of a pond, kind of being so focused on the islands and the thoughts and the objects and the things that are happening, but missing the flow of the water that these atoms are actually floating. Yeah. And from that, the dying isn't, the dying is the attachment to these, to these, the identification of these islands. That's the only thing that dies, is the attachment. Oh, and that, it's like the confusion of it's actually Living, it's like the water is the living, yeah. the ground yeah. is the light. Yeah. yeah. And um, and with that, then the stopping happens again, and it's so painful. Yeah. And it's not that it wasn't painful, but the contrast. The contrast is. Uh, oh. Yeah. And uh, we don't have time to go into too much detail, but what Wendy is pointing to is that once somebody has had some insight into, like, uh, an actual experience of the heart letting go of selfing, then even in messy places, like Wendy was describing, it's like there's a more direct approach, which is the mind, it's like, a, the Buddha says, it's like the taste of freedom isn't easily forgotten. So it's just a matter of the mind remembering freedom, the the actual experience of the mind not grasping. Memory is surprisingly potent. You know, if you remember something, there's a seed of the actuality of that thing you're remembering when you remember. So if you remember freedom the mind starts to see it. It's like that figure ground shift that Wendy was talking about. But when the mind isn't remembering, it's just seeing the islands. But when the mind remembers, it starts to see space around the islands. And this is a nice metaphor. It is a metaphor for the whole release of grasping is this figure ground where the mind is fixed on some concept, some idea, 
And then at some point, because of either the instruction or because of some memory, the mind opens to the space. It releases, it lets the attachment, the fixation on the object die. That dies, it grieves the loss of that attachment, and it may hurt, but then the mind opens to freedom. And that's the basic movement of practice. And once that the mind knows freedom, then it's much more that direct way of practicing, where the mind is basically, it's not so much meditation as it is, the mind is trusting the reality of freedom, or trusting the reality of non-grasping. That's the practice, trusting the reality of non-grasping. And you can do that anywhere, right? You don't need to sit down on a cushion to do that. You're just trusting the reality of non-grasping in this moment, not theoretically or in some other moment. But in this moment, there is the reality of non-grasping. It's already here. It's always been here. It always will be here. It's characterized by not being able to be stained in any way or corrupted in any way. So this now it's, you know, for most of us, maybe just useful information. But to the degree that that information resonates with some real confidence based on experience, then you can really work from that place or practice from that place. And, of course, we'll continue next week. We'll have small groups. Um, I put some reflection themes for next week's small group discussion up on the webpage. If you don't know the webpage, remember it's simple, buddhaststudies.commongroundmeditation.org. All the readings are there. I'll put this passage that I read tonight up there and a few other things. And I think a couple of people sent me some things. I'll try to get those things up in the next day or two as well. So just take a few seconds. Buddhaststudies.commongroundmeditation.org So just take a few seconds and let go of the words. just abiding in gratitude for our community, for these teachings, for this interest of the heart to see things clearly, to be fearless, to be alive. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.